Good to see um, everybody here. It's encouraging uh, to see you. Um, it's good to be with you, worshiping with us, uh, and celebrating God's uh, promises and goodness towards us. Um, my name is Matthew Watson. I serve as um, one of the pastors here, the pastor of teaching and outreach here at Christ City. Um, a couple of things. I, I recognize that there's um, kind of folks that are newer here, and um, one of the questions that's come up, I'll just sort of head it off at the past because it may show up at newcomers, is um, who's the preacher? We have many, uh, and I get to be one of them. They, they pull me off the bench sometimes, let me, let me put me in the game coach. Um, but one of the reasons for that is because we don't want for there to be just a singular voice from which we hear the gospel. We want there to be different perspectives and different voices and different social locations uh, so that we might be fully formed to the image of Jesus. And so that's why we have collaborative uh, approaches to sermon preparation, while we invite um, a number of folks from within our congregation, from folks that are um, outside of our congregation, but so that we can harmonize those voices to hear the good news of God in our lives and consider what that means for our city. So uh, I just want to put that out there and say um, that's why you, you hear from different folks, because we want to be fully formed into the image of Jesus and that you can't just do that from one person. And we'll also say that um, we need to hear from you as well. That there's spots for uh, you to be able to articulate to uh, the collective about what it means to follow Jesus as well. So your voice is important. So um, that's uh, just want to say that I am. Um, I'm excited about this morning. Maybe I don't know. It's excited might not be the best word. Uh, expectant. I'm expectant uh, that God is going to move in our gathering collectively and in our lives individually this morning. Um, I say that because uh, it has seemed to a number of us, staff, the elders, um, small group leaders, members of the prayer team especially, it has seemed to us that Christ City is in this, that we're in a special season um, where we are sensing and experiencing God's presence in unique ways, ways that frankly we haven't in the past few years. There's been some evidence of this that we're noticing. And, and, and I don't want to, you know, look for a demon behind every bush or ascribe every, you know, free parking space closest to the entrance as a sign of divine blessing. But there are some things that we're seeing and that we're noticing. We're hearing whispers from our small group that those that have been far from faith or burned by churches in the past, that they're rediscovering or renewing their relationships with Jesus and an excitement about the Spirit's work in their lives. We're seeing a hunger for prayer, an increase in the number of those on the prayer team and consistent people in prayer in our Lenten morning prayer calls. In a few weeks, as Lisa mentioned, we're going to celebrate baptism. Those that uh, in our church that want to make a public declaration of their commitment to Jesus. Some have been following Jesus for a while, but have never been baptized. And others are younger in the faith, but that they've been growing in their faith and they've come to a place of wanting their community of faith to know of their commitment to following Jesus. By the way, um, if uh, there's not a cutoff, not like a due date, you didn't let us know, sorry, you're not on the list. There's always more room. And so if that's you, if, if you've never been baptized or, or even aren't sure what it's all about, but want to make a public statement of your faith, both, both for yourself and for those in your faith community, then we'd, then we'd love to talk with you a little bit more about that. And I say all this to say that um, I come into this place with a, heightened with a heightened expectation that God is up to something. God is up to something 
among us, around us, in us. And my sense is that the Spirit is stirring in, in many of us here individually even. I want to pray that, that, that you, I, I want to pray that I remain in a posture of openness this morning to God. Just as we've sung and as we've prayed and celebrated and recited prayers, and now as we look at Mark's gospel, I want to ask you to remain open to what the Spirit might want to say and do in your lives. It didn't just start here, but even as you were coming in, that the Spirit was stirring. Ways the Spirit might want to comfort you or offer healing to you or invite you into new patterns of living that are informed by God's Spirit. Or maybe it's ways that the Spirit might be challenging you. Challenging you to take steps of surrender. Challenging you to take steps of pruning. Cutting some things off so that others might grow. Steps of acceptance. Accepting yourself because God accepts you. Saints, as we move through our time together, I I just want to set the stage and ask for you to join me in expectation. Join me in being open to God's comfort and care and challenge and love in this moment. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would receive our worship so far. God, that you would move in us, that you would move around us and through us. God, that you would arrest us, that you would hold our minds. Maybe we're thinking about a thousand things, but God, help us to think singularly on you. Lord, help us hold this moment, not just for the sake of this moment, but for the sake of our lives and the sake of the world. Let us be courageous. Amen. Uh, so we're in the home stretch um, of exploring Mark's gospel. For, for weeks now, for, <laughs> for weeks, for the better part of a year, year and a half now, we have been making our way through the gospel of Mark. And we've been doing this with a singular aim to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Over our 18-month slog through Mark, we've broken it into, um, it's probably, I probably should have used a more holy word, but um, come on, anybody, I mean, you're like, ah, oh, still in Mark, man, I, we started this joint back before the pandemic hit or something, I don't know, but over our 18-month glorious journey through Mark, we've broken the gospel into three sections, and this last section that we are in Um, that will take us to the end of Mark. It's a section that we've entitled, How to Really Live. And the thrust for this section is for us to consider how do we really live the life that Jesus is inviting us uh, into through Mark's gospel? What might it mean and how might it look if we were to order our lives around the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? What might the Uh, What might be the implications on our lives because of Jesus' teaching and because of Jesus' sacrifice? And how can we really live the life that Jesus intended for all of us to live? We pick up in the story in Mark 14, and it's the week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, though the disciples don't know that that's what's about to happen. They're all in Jerusalem or kind of around Jerusalem in order to celebrate a series of Jewish festivals, Jewish holidays, most notably the Holy Day of Passover. And Jesus and his disciples, they also visit some towns that are just sort of on the outskirts, smaller towns on the outskirts of Jerusalem, which is where the story of Mark 14 begins, beginning in verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, they were only two days away. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. 
Mark begins this section with setting the timing of the story. You see, it's a couple of days before the celebration of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. So I want to talk about these two holidays for a minute. Both Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, they are uh, two high holy days in the Jewish calendar. Uh, and they're holidays that are both found in the story of Jewish liberation from Egyptian slavery in the Old Testament book of Exodus. They are holidays established as a way for Jews to remember and to celebrate God, rescuing his people from the oppression and violence of Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, the, the Jewish people, they have been enslaved by Pharaoh. And in response to the cries of the Jewish people, God sends Moses. Moses is the one who pleads with Pharaoh to let the people go free. And Pharaoh repeatedly rejects Moses' requests. And with each rejection, God sends a plague upon Egypt in an effort to get Pharaoh to relent. There's a plague of frogs and a plague of locusts and hail and a host of other things. But still, Pharaoh will not budge. And each plague, though, it's intended to be an act of divine justice against Pharaoh's evil, uh, evil and oppression. And the aim of it all is to secure freedom for an enslaved people. Finally, the, the tension in the story reaches a, this climax in the 10th and tragic plague where God is going to kill the firstborn sons across all of Egypt in response to Pharaoh's violence against the Hebrew people. It's a tough story. And it's at this point in the Exodus story, as theologian Dr. Tim Mackey points out, that we get these two long chapters, this growing climax of the plagues and the violence and what's going to happen. And then there's this break in the story where we get these two long chapters of detailed instructions for what is essentially how to throw a dinner party. It's a curious turn in the story, but it has a purpose. And the purpose is to outline for the people how they are to celebrate this divine act of liberation that's about to happen and how they are to celebrate this in the future. It's a curious turn, but what God provides is a recipe for how to eat lamb. God tells the Israelites to pick out a lamb, one without blemish or defect, and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to do, in Exodus 12, it says, take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. They're to paint uh, the blood over all of the door frames of their house, and anyone who is in that house will be spared from the final plague. Exodus 12, 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, pass over. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil and also shows mercy by providing a substitute. Now, the festival of unleavened bread also has its origins in Exodus 12 and in the Exodus story. And in, in the same section where God is giving instructions regarding the lamb and the blood, he decides this would be a good time to give some baking instructions as well. So he tells the people to bake bread, but uh, not to use leaven in it. Leaven is essentially a, a yeast. I'm not a baker. That's what they tell me. Um, the thinking is that once the plague hits Egypt, then Pharaoh will, fill the, will free the people, but they're going to need to move fast and travel quickly. And so there won't be time for waiting for bread with yeast to rise and sort of get to the spot, and then you sort of put it in the oven like to do all the yeasty things that leaven does. So instead, just bake the bread like quick, fast, in a hurry. It's basically going to be like a flat bread, and it cooks quickly, and it lasts a long time. So this is what you got to do. 
The instructions culminate in Exodus 12, 17, where God says, Celebrate the festival of the unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. And celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were central celebrations in Jewish life that told their salvation story. And Exodus, uh, immediately following these instructions and the subsequent leaving of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. It's at this point that we actually find the first song of worship in the Bible. As people praise God from freeing them from Egypt. And it's in this story that the first time the word salvation is used, which simply means to be rescued from danger. Mark tells us that it was just two days before the children of God commemorated their salvation story. Just two days before they reenacted the meal that, inaugurate, that God inaugurated in order to prepare them for their coming liberation. Just 48 hours before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and the teachers of the law that began scheming to arrest Jesus and to kill him. At different points in Mark's gospel, we've noted that Mark uses juxtaposition, the sort of bringing two things alongside each other to highlight the person and the work of Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at Mark 12 and saw the differences between the hypocritical generosity of the teachers of the law with the true sacrifice of the widow. Earlier in Mark 8, the conversations about Jesus' messiahship on the one hand, followed by Jesus' statements about his death on the other, a decidedly un-messiah-ish action. Mark 5, Jesus' healing, healing those possessed by, by demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, followed by Mark 6, where Jesus notes that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. We could go on, but... Here again, Mark continues to use juxtaposition in order to communicate a message. On the one hand, the pending celebration of salvation, and on the other hand, those aiming to kill the one who would bring ultimate salvation. Celebration and freedom and salvation on the one side and death and destruction on the other. But Mark isn't only showing the differences between Jesus and the chief priests and law teachers. Mark is also interested in establishing the connections between these ancient stories of salvation and Jesus. Mark is bringing these two stories in close proximity to one another. On the, on the eve, eve of the Passover celebration, I'm not sure that's the right word, but I googled it. I couldn't find another one. Maybe you know what it is. Tell me afterwards, but I'm going to use eve, eve. On the eve, eve of the Passover celebration, the one who would finally and fully bring about salvation, he's drawing them close. The connection is furthered by what comes next, though. A woman who comes to worship Jesus. Verse 3, While he, Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table, the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Simon the leper, by the way, doesn't mean that he currently has leprosy. Maybe he had it in the past. It was more of a nickname. My... My grandfather was called Speedy. I don't think it was because he was fast. <laughs> I think it was because he was not. <laughs> at any rate, back to the story. Reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume over his head. 
Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus is with the disciples and he's with some others and they're in Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They're at the home of a man named Simon and an unnamed woman comes out to anoint Jesus' head with perfume. The language that Mark uses, it actually seems to indicate that the woman was with Jesus and with the disciples. It's not that she has like, come in from the outside, but rather that she has been with them the whole time, through the whole dinner. As theologian Catherine Clark Kroger notes, the woman came with a jar of costly ointment, suggesting that she was one of the dinner guests or part of the household. Either way, the language is an indication that women were routinely included among those disciples and followers that surrounded Jesus. The woman takes the jar of expensive perfume. She breaks the jar and begins to pour it over Jesus' head. She anoints Jesus' head with perfumed oil. Kroger goes on to further the significance of this moment. In the history of Israel, anointing the head, the anointing of the head signified selection for a special task, particularly priesthood or kingship. One of the primary functions of prophets was to anoint kings with oil. The woman's anointing is her symbolic confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one. He is the coming king. And Jesus understood this action by this disciple. An action of anointing of Jesus, the establishing of Jesus, kingship and messiahship, a a prophetic action pointing to his crucifixion and his resurrection. She understood more than any of the others, more than Simon who was hosting, more than the disciples who were also reclining at the table, what was ahead for Jesus. This woman becomes the first person in Mark's gospel who fully understands that the Messiah would be crucified. And her actions anticipate this, the spice-bearing women who were the first to go to the tomb and the first to receive the charge to declare the resurrection. Side note. This is why we affirm women in leadership and women preachers. I know there's those that don't, but I don't know how else you get around the fact that it is women who are the first evangelists, the first to identify the messiahship of Jesus, and then the first to proclaim this truth. As women, I receive that. It is women who are the first to display the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And what happens here at this dining table, and it is women who are the first proclaimers of the gospel following Jesus' resurrection. You see, what this woman does, it's it's, it's an act of worship as we've sung about already. She's celebrating the approaching salvation that was going to come by way of Jesus. And in response to that good news, she worships. She brings what she has. Just as those freed Hebrews worshipped following the parting of the Red Sea and sang about the salvation that God had provided, she too presented a sacrifice as the, to the only one who saves. A few things I want to note just real quickly about her, her, her worship, her form of worship that I think are instructive for us. First, it's a sacrifice. What she brings is costly 
Mark notes that what she brings is an expensive jar of perfume. I don't know if you looked at cologne and perfume prices recently. I'm not talking about the, like the guys on the street with the bandoliers of cologne. I'm talking about like the, you know, yeah, and the, the, the deal at the store. CVS got that, joint, that stuff locked up. Like you can't just be like, let me test. Can't do that in the neighborhood. You got to go. No, Metro Center. I don't know where you go, really. <laughs> I'm just like, man, just... it's an expensive jar of perfume. I probably said something about me trying to buy some perfume, cologne at the CVS, right? Like... <laughs> man, I'm struggling. Let me keep going. I'll find my way. Mark notes she brings an expensive jar of perfume. Scripture notes that it's worth a, a year's wages. It's no small amount. And I suspect that undoubtedly she had, she had thought about this. She considered, what can I bring? She prayed through this. She consulted, can I bring this to the Lord? And yet upon realizing that she's dining with the one upon whom her liberation uh, is held, she, she doesn't withhold it. She doesn't just give like a little bit. Like, hey, let me test this. She's like, the whole thing, Jesus. The other thing about our worship is that it's fragrant. There's a perfume of nard, which means that uh, would have meant that when she poured it over Jesus' head, the, the aroma, it would have filled the room. It's a strong floral fragrance which would, would have cut through the must and the odor and the fumes that were filling the room. And instead, it would have put forward a bouquet of joy. It was fragrant. But her worship was also misunderstood. It was repulsive to some. The scriptures say that those in the room, they chastised the woman, saying that her sacrifice was misplaced. She was told that there were more important or more impactful strategies that her sacrifice could have been leveraged for. And in the midst of her worship of Jesus, some rebuked her, not understanding that she was anointing one who would be king and priest, that would be the liberator and the savior, even for those that rebuked her. And her worship had lasting effects. Her actions in that moment with Jesus they weren't just for the audience in that moment, but had resonance throughout history. In verse 9, Jesus says of her, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, including 601 15th Street Northeast, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Her devotion her sacrifice, her worship of Jesus was a song of salvation that was sung in the presence of those gathered around that table, but its impact extended beyond that night in that dining room in Bethany. Her witness has radiated around the world and throughout history and continues to proclaim that Jesus is the one who rescues, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is our King and our High Priest who cares for us and welcomes us. However, there's, there's also a, a sobering moment in this passage. In verses 6 through 8, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing. In verse 7, he says, the poor you will always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. 
those that are around the table, they're trying to stifle the woman's worship of Jesus. And Jesus responds by telling them to leave her alone. And he affirms what she's doing and he commends it. And he says this phrase, though, that can strike us as a bit unsettling, perhaps. It's a statement about the poor. He says, you'll always have the poor with you. This is in response to the suggestion that she could have sold the perfume and given the proceeds to those in need. Um, to our 21st century ears, it can sound like Jesus is saying something like, hey, that's a terrible idea what you guys are suggesting. No need to give it to the poor. It's not going to help them anyways. That's how it can sound to us. However, what Jesus is saying, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 15. And what's interesting about the passage that Jesus is quoting it's a passage wherein God is giving directions to Israel on how they are to care for the poor. It's in the passage, but it's also in this passage where Jesus says to Israel that because they have experienced God's salvation and rescue in Exodus, and because they have experienced God's generosity in Exodus, they should be a generous people. However, in Deuteronomy 15, God actually says, there should be no needy among you. Because you have experienced the generosity of God. But then God goes on to say that because the people of God will refuse to be generous and refuse to care for those experiencing economic hardships, he says in Deuteronomy 15, the poor will always be with you. Because of your lack of generosity. Because you forget your salvation story. Jesus isn't dunking on the poor or saying something akin to resignation about the presence of poverty. Rather, he's indicting the room. They would have known the larger context of this story. And they would have heard in Jesus' quote, Jesus saying, don't act like you care about the poor or what this woman does with her perfume. There are people living in poverty now because God's people refuse to live generously. That's how they would have heard what Jesus said in that moment. And then Jesus says, you won't always have me. Referencing his death and his ascension following the resurrection. Jesus forecasts his uh, burial and saying that the woman pouring perfume on him was preparing him for the grave. Jesus is, is pushing to the foreground the reality that a death and a burial is just up ahead. He's connecting his sacrifice and his covering to the sacrifice of the lamb in Exodus. He's foreshadowing that his life is to be required for the Passover that's just days ahead. He is the lamb, and his blood is the covering. I imagine the, the scene that Jesus is saying that this, this, that the woman, as she continues to pour the fragrant oil over his head, as she's She's massaging the, the, the oil into his scalp, and maybe she's humming salvation songs. And she does this even while Jesus talks of burials and resurrections. And the fragrance fills the room, and the scene is beautiful, and it's sober, and it's alive, and it's sad, and it's joy-filled, and awe-inspiring. It's a worship service, is it not? The past weeks we've been asking of Mark's gospel, what does it mean to really live? Maybe I can just conclude in this way. As I, as I come away from this passage, there's a question that pursues me. What does this scene have to tell me about how to really live in light of Jesus? I think it's this. 
I think that we are being invited to live as worshipers. We're invited to model our lives after this beloved unnamed sister saint who showed us what it means to worship Jesus and to celebrate God and to do so in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that costs us something, a life that is lived not for one's own sake but for the pur- or for the purposes of one's own well-being, but lived as a beautiful sacrifice to God and for the betterment of the world. I think we're also invited to live lives of worship that are fragrant. I don't mean like, you know, neglect hygiene, but like that we're to live lives that fill rooms that are stuffy with the weight of the day and the sorrows of the season and to live in a manner that fills the space with a fragrant reminder of God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace. And that we're called to live lives that are fragrant representations of God's great love for the world. I think we're called, we're invited to live lives of worship that may well be misunderstood at times. Lives that are prophetic challenges to the systems and structures that grind down people and pastoral cares for those that have been wounded by the world. Lives that might not follow the predetermined tram lines of proper and status quo. Following the liberating ways of Jesus can often put us at odds with the dominant cultural narratives. And yet we are nevertheless invited to live lives that have lasting effects in the world for the sake of the gospel. Lives that extend beyond ourselves and even beyond time and place. But we are also invited to live our lives of worship in the presence of death. Even when faced with death ahead, we are invited to remember God's works of salvation that were done in the past and anticipate God's just liberation that's just up ahead. Yes, there is a death just as there was for Jesus, but there's always a resurrection. Always new life, always freedom, always salvation. Saints, The lingering question, the pursuing question for us, for me, for you, is where is God inviting to live your life of fragrant, sacrificial worship that points to the day when all things are made new and made right and made whole and that declares that Jesus is the one who saves. Let me pray for us. Spirit, Pray that we would, that we would heed our our foremother's invitation to live lives of worship, to be poured out for the sake of Jesus, to live in a in a way that displays God's love and God's welcome, God's liberation and, and embrace. God, I pray that that you would show us where it is in our lives and in our world. You're inviting us to to display the joy and the wonder that my sister displayed in that dining room in Bethany. God, that her actions would, would disquiet us, would unsettle us, 
even as they comfort us and invite us into deeper ways of living in light of Jesus. I pray that we would respond. We would continue to say yes. In Jesus' name, amen.